We've all heard the phrase, that kind of thing doesn't happen in our town. But here on Midwest Murder, we will shatter that false reality. In fact, it happens more often than we know. And sometimes the details of the most horrific crimes that happen in our neighborhoods are lost in the back pages of newspapers, forgotten on our news channels, and eventually erased over time. We're here to talk about murder, diving into some of the most controversial cases in Midwest history. This show will not shy away from the morbid details of these horrific events and the often ugly truths behind them. What you will hear is a detailed timeline of events, perspectives from those closely involved, and analysis by experts. What you will feel is the darkness that surrounds each story, the innocence lost by the victims, and hopefully the justice that was ultimately delivered. Jonah Lanto. Don Palumbo. Hi. Hello. It's good to be back. To Wapton? Yeah, to Wapton. never been here before. On the stage with you, on the mics, doing an episode of Midwest Murder. It's like one of my favorite activities. We're here at City Brew Hall in Wapton, the very southeast corner of North Dakota. And I got to say, this is a beautifully restored building. Oh my gosh, it's gorgeous here. This this is like restoring an old property done right. Mm -hmm. It's it's Mm -hmm. so fantastic. Don and I love it here. What an awesome venue. And a big thanks to Teresa and the team here at City Brew Hall for hosting us. And a huge thanks to everyone who takes the time out of their busy life to rate and review Midwest Murder on iTunes. Those comments go a a long way to push us up the charts and I think to help other people decide whether or not Midwest murder Midwest murder is worth checking out. And we really like that shit. Even, even when people insult us, it's still Mm -hmm. entertaining to get a review and we'll we'll read them all. There's actually a t-shirt coming soon out of an insult. So who's laughing now? (laughs) Just kidding. I guess, I guess we're going to find out, but I'm curious, Don, what are people saying about Midwest murder these days? Our, D-O-E-L-E. I always feel like I butcher the name, so I'm just going to spell them. Our dole? Sure. Five stars, a Midwest treasure. Midwest murder is a Midwest treasure. My coworker turned me on to the podcast and the rest was history. I attended my first live show in Fargo and I look forward to being at future live recordings. Don and Jonah's voices are wonderful storytellers with pleasant voices. Their banter is my exact humor, so it feels like having a conversation with a good friend. Oh, thanks. Well, thanks. Yeah. Yeah. The banter worked out for her. Yeah. Or him. Yes. And then K-S-I-E-B-U-H-R. Give us five stars as well. Came for the murder, stayed for the Midwest. I'm a huge true crime podcast fan, but MM is my favorite. I love listening to Jonah and, and Don Banter, and their format is the favorite of all that I listen to. I've also attended a live show and had a major fangirl moment getting to meet them in person. Keep up the good work. You too. My not loves you. Well, thank you. Oh, Don, someone's out there fangirling about you. When, when, when people say they're, they're fangirling, I'm like, you guys, I probably shit my pants like last week. Like really, I'm not that cool. <laughs> like, I mean, it's not, yeah. Did you smell me when you fangirled? Because you, you might not have. I'm pretty average. Yeah. Might've killed yeah. the vibe a little <laughs> bit right there. Yeah. So something new to Midwest Murder is Club Midwest. It's kind of like a little fan club, and it's just for those folks who love us so much and want to do a little bit of something extra. And in return for that little something extra you kick us, we're going to give you little kickbacks, right? Yeah. Like pre-access to tickets, pre-sale tickets. We're doing a monthly merch giveaway. Mm-hmm. There's a little gift when you sign up. And you get 
the coolest part is you is get early access. Part? You get early access, you to, get early the access to the videos. Yeah. I mean, it so, depends on who's asking, but we're doing what we can to support those who want to go the extra yeah. mile with us. You can find more information about Club Midwest in the show notes or anywhere on our social media. And that support for us is huge as well. And we're able to give something back, which is pretty cool. And that, that support does great things. It helps us get case notes, keeps the lights on, puts gas in the car to come see you guys, like, you know, blah, 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 all that stuff. Midwest Murder amazing is independently produced and created by Don and I. So all those, all those things really do help. This show is also brought to you in part by Midwest Memoirs. And what is Midwest Memoirs? It's for people who love the stories of their family. It's for people who want those stories to carry on forever with their family so that future generations... Your, your kids' kids can hear the stories of your parents and your grandparents. And that's what Midwest Memoirs does. We ensure those stories and the voices who tell them are never forgotten. It's like hiring professionals to conduct a 60 minutes-like interview of your family, of your mom's life, your grandma's life, your uncle's life. In a nutshell, that's what Midwest Memoirs is doing. It's special. And I sleep better at night knowing that the stories of my grandma will not be forgotten. That at some point, the grandchildren I'm in no hurry to have will know my grandma Helen's voice and how our family got here. Well, I think one one thing too to point out is that so many times that we've we've done these interviews, the the interviewee is always like, "Well, my stories aren't that important." I assure you, they are. Yes, you, you they are so important. And while you were able to interview Grandma Helen, my Grandma Zelda, I never got the chance. You know, she just recently passed. And if I had those tapes or, you know, recordings, that would be huge. So I think it's, it's, it's a great, great, great thing. You can find Midwest Memoirs on Facebook and Instagram if you're interested in capturing the stories of your family. Tonight, our story spans several years. But it all starts with a match made in 1972. So what was happening back in 72? 11 Israeli athletes were murdered by Arab gunmen at the Olympics in Munich, Germany. The number one song on the airwaves was American Pie by like Don McLean. 17 minute long song, basically. <laughs> it was the, the DJ bathroom break the, song. The OG version. Yeah. <laughs> Hewlett Packard introduced the world's first scientific calculator, the HP 35 in this year. And no, it wasn't the size of a coffee table. It was actually the size of your pocket, the first pocket scientific calculator. And I I guarantee you those who use it still, like even the the inventors turned it up and like wrote boob backwards, like with nine zero zero nine, they still did because you know that happened. What good's a calculator if you can't write boob on it? (laughs) In 1972, the Boston Marathon was officially opened to women. Volkswagen Beetle sales exceeded those of the Ford Model T. The Atari was released in 1972 along with the game Pong. Pong went on to be the first commercially successful video game in history. George Carlin, such an icon, Mm -hmm. was arrested by Milwaukee, Wisconsin police for public obscenity for reciting his seven words you can never say on television at Summerfest. Welcome to the Midwest. Do you know what the seven words are? I don't remember them. I, I can't think of them off the top of my head, but I know I've heard them before. Well, listen, this is like a PG-13-ish type of show, so I won't say them all. <laughs> you can't say them on TV, but let me tell you, 
Every cuss word you can imagine was one of those words, plus one more you probably haven't thought of. And old George Carlin said them in public and got arrested. How absurd. Like right now, under those laws, me dro- us dropping the F-bomb up here, arrested. Right, right. <laughs> so ridiculous. George Carlin. 1972. In uh, 72, a passenger aircraft transporting a rugby team crashed at about 14,000 feet in the Andes Mountain Range near the Argentina-Chile border. 16 of the survivors were eventually found alive. They made a movie about it in the 90s called they, Alive. They did indeed. Yeah. Those, those, those men had to resort to cannibalism mm-hmm. in order to survive. Five White House operatives were arrested for burglarizing the offices of the Democratic National Committee. This was, of course, the beginning of the Watergate scandal. And, of course, Richard Nixon saying, I'm not a crook. I'm not a crook. Mm-hmm. And in 1972, the British Army killed 13 unarmed Roman Catholic civil rights marchers in Derry, Ireland. The incident is referred to as... Bloody Sunday by future generations. And that, of course, was the inspiration behind the song Sunday Bloody Sunday by the band U2. Mm-hmm. Now, I couldn't help but feel like this story has rather humble beginnings at a cozy Walgreens drugstore in Elk Grove Village, Indiana, that just so happened to employ Frank DeLuca, a tall, dark, sleazy hunk of a man with an insatiable passion for sex, swinging, and German shepherds. I'm sorry. I was just, his, I was, I was his just hobbies re- I was were... Reading along, yeah. you know, nodding, and then, like, it, I process that. It's very okay. specific. Yes. And I am honestly ter- terrified, and I feel like this Frank is not going to be a good Frank. Not a great Frank. Okay. Uh, he, he will go down as one of the worst Franks in Midwest murder history, okay. but maybe second worst Frank. I don't know. We'll see. He kind of looked like Matt Dillon in his 30s. So not like. So he's actually attractive. Yes. Yeah. Legitimately a pretty, right. pretty attractive looking guy. Not like some of these humps who are like, you know, ladies are throwing their undies at them. I'm like, oh, I'm sorry. That's he wasn't even attractive in the 70s. Right. You know, so that was OK. Oh, yeah. DeLuca. He had it. He's legitimately attractive. And. He graduated from Purdue University with a pharmacy, de- pharmacy degree and started working at Walgreens in the early 60s. By the end of the decade, Frank was promoted to manager. He was also married with five kids. Now, if you think that sounds like Frank DeLuca is leading a pretty busy lifestyle, just wait, because he manages to make time for a lot of extracurricular activities, such as Parties, seducing his staff. It was the 70s. Orgies, bragging about mafia connections, amateur photography, pharmaceuticals, getting his ass kicked, all kinds of stuff, and all initiated at Walgreens. I bet they were really proud of his employment then. I bet that was, they they probably still have a picture of him. (laughs) Yeah. This man even had a subscription to the lifestyle magazine, Swingers. Yes, that was a real magazine in the 70s. No judgment. Everybody deserves to live their own lifestyle. Hey, there were lots of key parties yeah. in the 70s. Lots, lots of, of smut them. magazines in the 70s. Not many of them made it out of the 70s. And Swingers, I think, was one of them. You can probably find a vintage copy for like 20 bucks on eBay. Not that I checked. I was just, I was just Googling. <laughs> Joy Hasek, 
a married mother of two, first met Frank DeLuca in 1969. She was employed at the same Walgreens store, working in the cosmetics section. Frank started coming on to her almost immediately, and by 1970, the two were hooking up about once a month. Joy had a nice home in the suburbs, a seemingly decent life, but something about Frank's willfully lustful pursuits just made her panties drop. Don't you ever say that again. Well. Don't ever say that again on here. Mm -mm. Joy Mm -mm. fell in love with Frank DeLuca. He was charming, reassuring, confident, and convincing. Joy was willing to try anything and everything if it meant pleasing Frank, and their sexual exploits soon became threesomes with other women, then orgies with other men and women, Sometimes Frank brought his dog along, a German Shepherd's. And Frank was always snapping Polaroids. Occasionally he filmed. Now, exactly how weird and inappropriate things got with the dog is a little unclear. However, Joy Hasek did for sure pose nude with the German Shepherd. Okay, I am not going to kink New shame. New German like, Shepherd modeling is I, what we're talking about here. I'm not going to kink orgy. shame. Like, that's just not what I do. Like... We all have our shit, right? You leave the dogs out of it. Not even like, for a naked picture? No. No, that is, like they, they cannot consent. Like, naked, that gets weird. No. Mm-mm. Naked booby picture nope. with a German shepherd? No. Nope. No, nope. it's drawn a line. And if, I'm sorry, if some of you have posed nude with your <laughs> dog, I'm judging you. I am. <laughs> I am. Because your dog didn't get to consent. If They've, you yeah. have ever taken a dick pic with your dog in the room, Don yeah. Palumbo's really pissed off about that. 100% I'm judging. 100%. Not necessarily in the room because, you know, dogs and cats, they're just like, hey, we live yeah, here, right? But like right. with them in the photo. But you're like, hey, get over here. Yeah, you're fucking right. I'm judging. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. That's a little mm-hmm. un- unnecessary. Yeah. Yeah. So these scenarios, they were bizarre, maybe even unnatural. But Joy wanted to please Frank, and Frank was good at getting what he wanted. Eventually, she grew tired of the wild sex swinging life and told Frank she could no longer be the swinger he desired. They broke it off, and Joy, still with her husband, left Walgreens for another job. That was in 1972. Man, the 70s are wild. Wild. Wow. Naturally, this didn't slow things down for Frank, now in his mid-30s. In fact, Frank had been planting the seeds of seduction with an attractive girl at the Corky's coffee shop next to Walgreens. The target of his lust... Patricia Colombo, who, in her mind, was actually targeting Frank. Their flirtatious pursuit was built on lies. As far as she knew, Frank was 25 and single. As far as he knew, she was an 18-year-old college student. Patricia Colombo was the first child of Frank and Mary Colombo, Italian-Americans who followed traditional patriarchal ways— He worked hard, smoked fat cigars, and provided she stayed home, stayed pretty, and stayed in her gender lane. Patricia was... What does that mean? Well, it means that he wanted her to do the things that he expected women to do in the 70s. Take care of the house, be pretty, take care of the kids. Oh, okay. Cook. Okay, like the the stereotypical gender role. Yeah. Okay. I'm sorry I yelled at you. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Patricia was Frank's princess, and growing up, that's how she was treated. Mary was beautiful, stylish. Her hair was always done up. 
Frank ran an automotive parts company and was heavily involved in the Teamster Union. The Columbos seemed like a loving nuclear family. Patricia loved being the center of attention, but when she was six, her brother Michael was born, stealing the spotlight. Their relationship over the years was a mixed bag. Although some claim she was a caring older sister, most people felt Patty was resentful of her younger brother. And Patricia was a wild child, willful, headstrong, always striving to be and act older than she was. She always wanted to be older and to be perceived as older. And there is some implication that Patricia was taught that a woman could get whatever she wanted from a man if she exercised her beauty and her body in the right ways. By the time Patty reached high school, she had a gaggle of boys that followed her through the hallways like lost puppies. She wore short skirts and tight shirts, and she loved the attention it brought her, although Patricia didn't have much interest in boys. In fact, high school wasn't going to hold Patricia's interest for much longer either. She started working at Corky's when she was 15, began her secret relationship with Frank DeLuca in 72 oh, she, she at age she, 16. Oh, she wasn't 22 pretending to be 18. She was much, much younger. He was Ooh. 35 pretending to be 25. She was 16 pretending to be 18. Yeah. Yeah. Oof. Okay. So... In 72, at age 16, is when they first started having, having sex, her and Frank DeLuca. Shortly after that, when she was 17, Patricia dropped out of school. At about that time, Frank DeLuca got her a promotion to the cosmetics counter at Walgreens. When Patty dropped out of school, her dad was totally pissed. and He was even more angry that his daughter started working. Frank Colombo didn't even allow his wife to work. He wanted his daughter under lock and key until it was time for her to marry. Frank Colombo didn't win those battles, but he did feel some pride when Patricia got promoted. An advancement his daughter earned warranted some recognition. If she wasn't going to school, at least she was working. Hold on. Frank is her dad Frank as Colombo well? is her dad. Okay. Frank DeLuca, right. her, her new super secret lover. Okay, so dad Frank. Dad Frank Colombo. Doesn't allow his wife to marry. Does not allow his, his wife to work. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. His wife is married right. to him. Yes. Is that how that works? Okay. <laughs> and then, but he was, but dad Frank was like, hey, hot dog, she still got a promotion. Yeah. He's like, okay. well... I don't want you to drop out of school, but you're working and right. it's full time. And now you got this cool promotion where you wear high heels okay. and short skirts and tight titty shirts, but it's fine. Everything's going to be fine. Unfortunately, throughout most of 1972 and into 1973, Patricia wasn't working nearly as much as she led her parents to believe. Instead, Patricia was in seedy motel rooms with DeLuca exploring the depths of an inappropriate, kinky, sexual love bond that went into realms of eroticism that rival even the most gratuitous pornos. There were orgies, threesomes with men and or women, including at least one other Walgreens employee. Sometimes DeLuca even brought along his German shepherd to be part oh, of the come action. come on. God, this guy sucks already. 
At the parties, DeLuca was usually providing some pharmaceutical or another, sometimes Valium, sometimes an upper, and they usually always drank whiskey. About one year into their relationship, Joy Hasek was rehired by the company and placed back in the store. Into the relationship of DeLuca and... Yes, one uh, year into the relationship of, of DeLuca and Patricia. But, okay. Yep. So Joy, his old swinger flinger. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Slinger. His old swinger flinger. Swinger flinger. Okay. It's a new one. I guess. Yeah. So she was hired back by Walgreens and put in his store, not his choice. And DeLuca told Patrish, that's what he liked to call her, Patrish. Cute. Yeah. He told Patrish that Joy was an ex-girlfriend of his, but in no way was he interested in her like that anymore. Patty was the only one he loved. He also told Patty not to have personal conversations with Joy. Don't I, talk to her. I could cover myself up with that giant red red flag. Like, <laughs> look at this blankie I have. See that new chick that was my ex-girlfriend? Don't talk I, to her. I am not interested in her whatsoever, but for the love of God, don't talk don't to talk her. Don't talk to her. Don't talk to her. Yeah. yeah. Aye, aye, aye. Not long after Joy's return, Patricia and Joy were working together when an attractive brunette came to the store and walked directly into DeLuca's office. The two spoke briefly, kissed, and then left. That woman was Marilyn DeLuca. At this point, Joy was unaware of the depth of Patty's relationship with DeLuca. She may have been suspicious that something was up, but she didn't know the extent of it. So Patricia played dumb and asked Joy questions about Frank. That's when Patricia learned DeLuca was married with five kids and that he was actually 35 years old, not 27 or 28 like she thought. Patricia was triggered. Later that night in their I feel ho- like that's not triggered. I feel like well, that, that, that can be, he can be rightfully pissed about that. Like, yeah, pissed, yeah. You know, it's not necessarily triggered. She it's not like really it's, mad. Well, like, I mean, really not that, mad, not that like, she's like this, the epitome of truth, but I, I mean... Oh, boy. Okay. Whose lie was bigger? <laughs> well, well, that's a tough debate. That's, that's tough. So Patricia, totally pissed, justifiably, confronted him later that night in their hotel room slash seedy sex cave. Oh, no, hang on. He, his was worse. He is the adult. She is not. Okay, fair. She is not. She is, fair. at this point, she is, a, she is still a child. Right. And yep. unbeknownst to him, right, because he's it's the 70s and... You know, we didn't ask questions, right? I say we like I was there, and but she she looked older than she was. Sure, she just frank, frankly, right, but she's she, still re- she really did. Yes, she Bottom really line, did. She's yeah, still yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, for sure. And so he's the piece of shit who is like, I don't even know him, and I already think he's a piece of shit. So that's that's telling me something. But he's thirty five, <laughs> lying about it, and yeah, no, his is worse. Okay. Well, so she confronts him at their little sex cave motel, and Deluca. He smoothly talked, lectured, explained, and used every stupid platitude you can probably think of to justify his actions. Patrish ate it with a spoon and then dropped her own bombshell on Frank. I'm only 17. I was 15 when you first met me, 16 when you first fucked me. If my father ever found out, he'd kill you. So you're lucky. I love you. And that was in late 1973, early 1974. Now, Frank had a great solution for this new quandary. In the summer of 1974, 
Frank DeLuca decided to move Patrish into his home where he lived with his wife Marilyn and their five children. How old, how old was the oldest child? Uh, 10, 11 years old. Yeah, something okay. like that. Yeah. Okay. They were like toddler to uh, just about middle school. Okay. It's, it's a move. Mr. and Mrs. Colombo, who hadn't really been seeing eye to eye with their 17-year-old daughter, allowed the move. They had no idea about anything that was going on. Her boss was offering her a place to stay. It seemed fine. Only it wasn't fine. Patricia was now closer to the man she loved, and instead of sneaking around in seedy hotel rooms, she and DeLuca could do their naughty business in the comfort of his home while his wife slept in the other room or attended the kids in the backyard. Well, I'm sure that saved on the budget. That's nice. No more renting hotel rooms. It's a really budget-conscious decision. At some point, the Columbos learned Frank DeLuca was a swinger with an insatiable sexual hunger and that his appetite was being satisfied by their daughter. In the summer of 1975... Patricia Colombo returned home, telling her parents the relationship with DeLuca was over. She asked for help getting an apartment, and her loving father, Frank Colombo, answered his daughter's plea for assistance, setting the now 18-year-old up in a nice apartment in Lombard, about 15 minutes from their home in Elk Village. Put down the deposit, paid the rent, got his daughter back on her feet, Little did Frank Colombo know he was footing the rent on DeLuca and Patty's new sex pit. Patricia wasn't done with DeLuca, not in the slightest. They were getting married. DeLuca and Marilyn were separated, soon to be divorced. But that was of little consequence to Frank Colombo when he found out. He was furious. In August of 1975, Frank Colombo, with a pump-action rifle in hand, confronted Frank DeLuca in the parking lot of Walgreens. He aimed the gun at DeLuca and said, I'm going to blow your head off. DeLuca cowered in fear, and Columbo smashed him in the mouth with the butt of his rifle, knocking several teeth loose and bloodying his lip, and then he smashed him again in the stomach, telling DeLuca, you're dead, you motherfucker, you're dead. But Columbo withdrew before any further violence occurred. A complaint was filed with police, but later withdrawn. The Columbos did not speak with their daughter for several months afterward. However, Frank Columbo's threat was taken very seriously. There were those who believed the old-school Italian had connections to the mafia. I mean, I feel like that's a stereotype. Just because he's Italian doesn't necessarily mean he does. The cigars. Teamsters yeah, affiliations, sure. you know. Right. He probably knows Jimmy Hoffa then. I mean, Absolutely. Come on. Yeah, he's in. Yeah. In September of 1975, Patricia Colombo was introduced to 25-year-old used car salesman Lanny Mitchell. Mitchell wanted to set Patty up on a date with his friend Roman Subzinski. According to Lanny, his friend Roman was a connected person of influence. Lanny offered Patty money to go on a date with Roman. Patty, at this point, was unemployed. She had been fired from Walgreens for stealing credit card info and using it. She was actually prosecuted and put on probation. Her father paid those fines. Patty explained 
to Lanny that she lived with her boyfriend who got smashed in the face with a rifle by her dad, but she was broke and needed the money so she'd be willing to go on the date. It was mid-October when Patricia met up with Lanny Mitchell and Roman Subzinski. The men wore guns to impress her. It worked, and after some drinking and dancing, the group sat down for a chat. Lanny Mitchell told Columbo that if she took care of Subzinski, favors could be done for her since Subzinski was heavy into politics, to which Columbo replied, quote, I'll fuck his eyes out for those favors. Okay. Okay. Sure. Yeah. And I, I bet it's some Chinsky. Subchinsky? I bet it's Subchinsky. Okay. Yeah. Not to correct you. But, no, I, you I, know, I, I would but, prefer to say it right. But my Subchinsky? guess is Subchinsky. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, he might get his eyes fucked out. Well, I, either, way, either way. Subchinsky, yeah. Subchinsky. Subchinsky or, or the sub ski guy. Some eyes getting fucksty, you know. Yeah, like. he's... Oh, yeah. He's getting fricked good. Yeah. Yeah. So there was no, there was no uh, uh, conjugal interactions that night. So what you're saying is no eyes were fucked that night? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> yeah. That, okay. That's what I was saying. <laughs> but Lanny told Patty he could get her an unmarked gun and some bullets. Over the next several months, Patricia Colombo went on to meet with and regularly call both Lanny Mitchell and Roman Subchinsky. Subchinsky. It's those Polish Russian names that I now I sound like an asshole because I can't decide which if it's Polish or Russian. <sighs> Delete okay. that, please. Now yeah. I sound like an asshole. No. That's I'm not. Gonna let, I'm going to let you be an asshole on this okay. recording the whole time. I'm, I'm sure. So it started with the request. I think it's Polish. Okay. I think. It started with the request for bullets and a gun, but then Patty would pepper in commentary about how awful her parents were and that. Her father was the only thing standing between her and true love. If only someone could kill her parents, her life could be complete. She definitely dropped these tidbits on the right person because Lanny Mitchell not only knew a guy, he was the guy. Used car salesman. He told Patricia that he could kill her parents for $10,000 per person. And I'm sure he thought it was really cool because he immediately called Roman afterward to tell him all about it. Roman was his boss and Lanny would be the hitman. I mean, first rule of Fight Club, you don't talk about Fight Club. Right. So dude, is he's already breaking the code, but whatever. Once he made the promise, Patty was relentless, calling Lanny weekly to ask when the hit would go down. Mitchell kept finding ways to stall, he asked for a rundown of her parents' activities and details on the house layout. In late October, he told Patty his conscience was getting the best of him, but Patty would not let it go. The following week, Columbo met with Roman and Lanny at a restaurant, asking, asking the men when the hits would take place. So that $10,000 in 1972 is equivalent to almost $73,000 today. Okay. So that's that's got that's some purchasing power there. It pays well. It, it, yeah, I it mean, pays well. If you get, I money. mean, if you're comparing it to a human life, I guess it that feels yeah. feels weird to say that pays well. Well, for, you know. Yeah, you know, you're right. Yeah, yeah, but you figure you do like a hundred a year. It's like a lot of money, you know. Sure. It's like John Wick. Yeah. You know, yeah. John Wick gets paid pretty good. I feel like it. Yeah, and yeah. you know what? 
We all like John Wick. John Wick wouldn't be fucking with his dog. No. <laughs> no. Mm-mm. He killed people for messing with his dog. Yeah. So. Roman told her they needed some front money. Patty told him the money wouldn't arrive until she could cash in on the insurance policies after her parents' death. In the interim, it was agreed that a sex party would be a suitable down payment. Columbo then... <laughs> where, where do you find these? <laughs> like, I don't got oh, any money. How man. about a sex party? Okay. Okay? It's how we pay for things around here. Yes. Not around here. And <laughs> there. No. No, we don't, we don't pay yeah. for... No. Columbo then provided the men with photographs of her family, as well as a veritable dossier of their activities. Still, the killings did not go down. In November, Patty met up with Lanny, and they were supposed to case her house. But instead, the two of them met up with Roman and had a threesome. In early December, Patty made contact with her parents for the first time in several months, but only so she could leave the patio doors unlocked. She met with Lanny that night, and he noticed she was wearing a 12-inch knife for protection. He offered to get her a gun. That night, when the two arrived at the Colombo house, Mary was actually home. Lanny panicked and drove off. Patty went on to get into a heated argument with her mom about DeLuca's divorce. The patio door was left unlocked, and she urged Lanny to do the killings that night. She wanted them done now after that argument. He didn't do it. So she's still with DeLuca at this time? Absolutely. Okay. Yep. Later in December, Patty told Lanny her father had actually taken out a contract on Frank DeLuca's life. In January of 1976, Roman and Lanny met Columbo in a restaurant. While chain-smoking more brand cigarettes, Patty gave the order that her brother must also be killed in addition to her parents. It was too risky to keep her little brother alive because if he ever found out, her and Frank DeLuca would not be safe. Then she got a little hostile with them because she had sex with them both and didn't receive anything in return. Right, she gave the down payment. Yeah. 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 (laughs) The game went on for several more months into 1976. Patty had several sex parties with Roman and other friends through January and into February, all the while pressuring them to deliver on the promise of killing her brother and parents, telling the hitmen her and DeLuca were getting anxious and living in fear of her father's retribution. They were convinced Frank Colombo put a hit on Frank DeLuca's head. In early February, Roman called Lanny and said that Colombo wanted to meet them at a restaurant. Colombo drove up in a 1973 Javelin, kissed the driver, and got out. Inside the restaurant, Patty told him it was time for Lanny to do the hits or she would do it herself. Afterward, the three of them drove to an apartment to have sex, but when they arrived... Patty pulled a Derringer pistol from her purse, pointed it at Lanny, and told him how easy it would be to kill someone. Then, she only had sex with Roman. Lanny told Roman later that night he thought Patty was a crazy bitch and he wanted out. I mean, I'm... 
I, I don't think I would use those words. He's not wrong at this point. <laughs> yeah, I would word it differently, more respectfully. But Throughout all this, Roman spoke on the phone several times to Frank, but never once did he or Lanny meet Frank DeLuca. Roman also told Frank over the phone he no longer had to worry about the contract that Frank Colombo put out on him because he, Roman, bought the contract out and put a stop to it. Now, Roman did end up getting Patty a gun, a 32 caliber, seven-shot snub-nosed revolver. In March, Patty allegedly shot herself with the gun accidentally. Not knowing what else to do, her and DeLuca called Colombo because they didn't want Patty going to a hospital. Or excuse me, her and DeLuca called Roman because they didn't want Patty going to a hospital. They're freaking out. Roman, what do we do? But in reality, this was just a ploy to get Roman to call them back so they could reiterate to him, you need to do the hits that Patty gave you sex for. I... That was funny, <laughs> the way you worded that. Uh, so Roman and Frank DeLuca are in cahoots? Is this... Roman and Lanny. Roman is Lanny's boss. Yeah, yeah, Frank, yeah, yeah. Frank DeLuca, of course, is... That's the man that yeah, Patricia yeah, is yeah, with. Yeah, the German Shepherd guy, yeah. DeLuca and, and Roman have been talking on the phone. Okay. So Frank is Frank DeLuca's had several conversations with Roman. and what ca- you know, Like, what caused that? Do you know, like, what caused that connection? They, Frank and Lanny, or excuse me, so many names here. There's, there are a La- lot of names, yeah. Lanny and Roman wanted to talk to Frank and wanted to stop dealing with Patricia. And they knew Patricia was dealing with somebody else. So they oh. said, hey, let me talk to Frank. And so then Patty hands them the phone. They're all together at like a restaurant. They hung out at the same restaurant all the time. All the phones were made at the restaurant, at this restaurant um, phone call, phone there. And so, yeah, there were several conversations between Roman and Frank. They never met in person. Lanny never talked on the phone to Frank. It was just Roman who had that privilege. And it was Roman who told Frank DeLuca, hey, don't worry about that hit that Colombo put out on you. I bought that contract off. You're going to be okay. Okay. But they still wanted them to take care of the Colombos. They still wanted the hits done, even if that contract didn't exist anymore. Okay. On March 22nd, Lanny called Colombo from Roman's house, and that's when they told, hey, we want to meet DeLuca face-to-face. It's time to get him involved on the next level. In their mind, Patty was a loose cannon, and it would be easier for them to instead deal with DeLuca and cut her out. After March 22nd, neither Roman nor Lanny heard from the lovebirds again. During much of this time, throughout early 76, Frank's behavior at work was erratic. He maintained a sort of one-sided friendship with Joy Hasek at Walgreens, periodically spewing weird tidbits of his life at her, telling her the danger that he was in, getting assaulted by Frank Colombo. DeLuca told Joy Hasek that Frank Colombo put a hit on it put a hit on him, but it wasn't a big deal because his guys bought the contract. And then he told Joy, I took a hit, I took a hit out, a contract on 
Frank Colombo. DeLuca told everybody at work that he had old mafia friends that owed him a favor. DeLuca liked to run his mouth and believed he was impressing others with his boasts. He spoke often to Hasek of his plans to have the Columbos killed. He talked about the hitmen and openly wondered to Joy if they'd deliver on the kill. DeLuca also told Hasek that when the Columbos were finally dead, he would have all their money, pay off his wife's mortgage, and sail around the world. He told Hasek to let him know any time 13-year-old Michael Colombo came in to Walgreens. So evidently during the period of their relationship, young Michael would come into Walgreens and hang out and make, make psychotic eye contact at Frank DeLuca, according to DeLuca. Well, I don't believe anything he says, but... Right. Yeah. Hasek wasn't the only Walgreens employee getting an earful from Frank DeLuca. Hubert Green, the assistant manager, was given a heavily taped brown paper package on April 11th. DeLuca gave him the package and said, don't tell anyone about this unless they tell you that a codename Duke. Are you going to take that package from me, Don Palumbo, if I'm just like, hey? No, probably not. Like, I feel like that's a bad 80s movie. Like- yeah, well... It's really what he did. And Green held on to it. A week later, DeLuca asked Green for the package. Did he use the code word Duke? That's <laughs> a good, fair question. When, when DeLuca opened it in front of him, it was a gun, a revolver. On April 19th, 1976, DeLuca approached Green and told him, quote, I need someone I can trust to pick up Patrish and take her somewhere. Green ended up taking Patty on a recon mission through the Colombo neighborhood. When Green picked up Colombo, he noticed that she was not dressed in her usual flashy manner, but instead wore blue jeans, a long brown coat, and a scarf. The recon was uneventful. Green dropped Patty off in a church parking lot not far from her parents' home, and DeLuca later told him the Columbos had a contract on his life, and he hired two hitmen to kill them. But the hits hadn't gone down yet. Although Hubert Green had previously been to quote-unquote parties at Columbo's apartment, he didn't consider himself a close friend of DeLuca or Columbo and rarely had personal conversations with them at work. But I guess they were muff buddies, so DeLuca trusted him. Really? I, I, I mean, muff buddies, muddy buddies... I don't know. They were... Let's... You should stop. Yeah. Like... I mean, I, I don't yeah. have any more, so I have to stop Good, right I'm there. glad. And but that was enough to develop some sort of sense of trust between... So, like, know. I mean... I brought you over to my orgy. Now I trust you to hold this gun, right. Duke. So here's my devil's triangle, buddy. Yeah. Right? And... Yep. Yeah. Yep. On the okay. evening of April 26th, 1976, DeLuca again asked Green to pick up Columbo and drop her off at the church. The hits were going down, DeLuca told him, and he was working late on April 26th in order to cover for his alibi. But Frank DeLuca showed up the next day and told Green the hits didn't happen yet, but it's coming. A week later, DeLuca again told Green that he and Columbo were taking matters into their own hands because, quote, it's them or us. 
Now, I just want us all to stop and just consider for a moment this weird-ass fucking break room at Walgreens. Your boss comes in every day bragging about orgies with his German shepherd, talking up his mafia connections, and casually making conversations about murder for hire. This is Walgreens in, in Elk Grove Village, okay? And you wonder why we had, like, after-school specials and shit. I mean, like... This is, this is why, well, you know. Stop wondering. Oof. So all of this is because Patricia, or Patrish, as he calls her, yeah. had a baby brother? Eh. I mean. I, it, I don't know. She, I, yeah, it's, it's, good, it's a good question. It's hard to say what, what the real Dang. pure motive was. She hated her dad, wanted his money, hated her brother. I don't, like, I, I don't know. Any of these things are hmm. on the table. Also in April 1976, DeLuca told Joy Hasek the hitmen abandoned him and the new plan was to kill the Columbos and make it look like a robbery. Then he threatened to kill Hasek and her children if she told anyone about his plans. Well, then why tell her? Like, I'm already annoyed. <laughs> I, I, I wish I could say, I don't, I don't know. I don't know. On May 3rd, Around 9 p.m., Hubert Green once again picked up Columbo from her apartment and dropped her off at the church. As on both prior occasions, Columbo was dressed in blue jeans, a long brown coat, and a scarf. On May 4th, DeLuca was growing more agitated, nervous. He told Green the Columbos bought off the contract that he took it out on them, and it was active again. He was in danger. On May 4th, 1976, at approximately 4 p.m., Joy Hasek saw DeLuca leaving the store. On his way out, he asked Hasek to see the movie One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest that night at, and then report all the details to him the next day. When Hasek asked him, well, why do you need me to do that? He refused to answer. He said, just do it. So she was supposed to go to the movie by herself? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Remember to ask me why... Why? Okay. okay. Well, if I, if I don't remember, someone else please someone else do. Will. Yeah. On May 5th, when Green got to work at 8.30 a.m., he saw Frank DeLuca coming out of the incinerator. The afterburner was glowing. It was the earliest Green had ever seen DeLuca at work. Why does Walgreens have an incinerator? I don't know. Some kind of, you get, I don't know, you got to burn some bad meds or something. I don't know. I, I, it's a fair question. When DeLuca saw Green, he approached him and feverishly said, the hits went down. The Columbo house is a fucking mess. I was covered in blood from head to toe. Hubert Green was shocked, unsure if he could actually believe Frank DeLuca. Then Frank went on to describe the violence. I shot Frank twice, once in the back of the head, which blew his teeth out. Then I shot Mary, and I did Michael last. DeLuca commented that Frank Columbo was a, quote, tough bird, and he had to smash a lamp over his head to knock him out. But because there were no lights on in the house, Frank had to clean up the mess by candlelight. DeLuca burned his clothes and dropped the gun and pieces of the lamp into the river. At around 9 a.m. that same, that same day, May 5th, when Joy Hasek arrived to work at Walgreens, 
She noticed DeLuca sitting alone in the lunchroom. She thought he was high. He appeared really happy. There were cuts on his hands. When DeLuca saw Joy, he started telling her how he murdered the Columbos the night before, repeating what he previously told Hubert Green, adding that Mary was no problem. She came around the railing on the landing, and I shot her right between the eyes, and then I shot Michael. He told Joy he was wearing gloves. Hasek was shocked. She left him in the lunchroom. He called her back about 20 minutes later and said, I, I was just kidding. I just wanted to see how you'd react to all that. On May 6th, DeLuca was seen wandering the back room of Walgreens, wondering aloud why the bodies had not been found. It was Thursday, May 6th, in the late afternoon, when a 1972 Maroon Thunderbird was reported as a suspicious vehicle, abandoned in a high-crime area. Windows were smashed, hubcaps were missing, but it wasn't stripped altogether, so the officers suspected it was done by amateurs. The owner was quickly confirmed, Frank Colombo, residing about 15 to 20 minutes away in the safe, quiet neighborhood of Elk Grove Village. After an evening, followed by a morning of phone calls not returned, an officer was dispatched to the Colombo home on Friday, May 7th. Arriving just before 5 p.m., something immediately felt wrong when he noticed three days of newspapers sitting outside. He could hear a dog barking from inside the home. When nobody responded to the officer's knocks, he called for backup, and two policemen entered the Colombo residence just after 5 p.m., it was a horrifically disturbing scene of violence. The beautiful suburban house smelt of decay. Frank Columbo was found laying on his back in a crimson-soaked plaid shirt, pants, and wearing socks. His head was a swollen mask of blood. There appeared to be bullet holes in his face. Four thirty-two caliber bullets would later be recovered from Frank's head and face, there were no exit wounds from the shots that entered his skull. The bloodshed spread across the living room. There was a lampshade partially covering Frank's body, a couch cushion, blood-soaked lay on the floor. And when officers turned the corner, they saw a body of a second female victim. They quickly exited and called for crime scene investigators. It was Detective Ray Rose who responded to investigate the scene inside the Colombo home. It was an extreme level of violence. There were different patterns of blood splatter on the ceiling. There was even blood splatter on the underside of a glass table, indicating Frank was brutalized after he fell helplessly to the ground. Four teeth were found in the carpet amidst broken glass. Mary Colombo was shot directly between the eyes, and then her throat was slit. Her head was bashed in by a block-shaped blunt instrument similar to Frank's. A large diamond ring remained on her hand, although her purse and its contents were strewn across the kitchen. Heading upstairs, the detectives turned off a buzzing alarm that had been going repeatedly and was set for 9 a.m. The phone was off the hook, which struck Detective Rose as strange because when police previously tried calling, the phone rang and went unanswered. Jewelry was scattered about upstairs. Blood smeared across the walls in the hallway. In the last bedroom of the house, Detective Rose found the body of 13-year-old Michael Colombo, 
dressed in a white t-shirt, soaked crimson, and blue pants with no socks. The back of his head was crushed in. Next to Michael's body, a bowling trophy with a bloody, brain-covered marble base. Michael was found on his back, but it was apparent he had been rolled over. There was a bloody handprint on his forearm. He was shot twice in the head. His chest and neck were covered in cuts and slashes. A pair of bloody sewing scissors were found on a desk nearby. 13-year-old Michael Colombo was cut or stabbed more than 90 times. Neighbors had gathered outside, and when they heard the whispered confirmation of Columbo's, of the Colombo family's murder, a murmur of panic spread through the crowd. Quote, my God, who's going to tell Patty? There was no shortage of evidence on the scene. Blood samples, fingerprints, a hair on Michael's shirt, a partial palm print, pieces of carpet and furniture, more than 100 pieces of relevant evidence was collected from the crime scene. Noting all the defensive wounds on Frank Colombo's body, it was clear to detectives that he fought like hell or he might have been tortured to open his safe. Although some various valuables were taken, all the big ticket items like electronics, uh, CB radios, jewelry, nearly $5,000 in a wall safe were all left behind. That in addition to no forced entry, led Detective Rose to believe that this was not a robbery gone wrong. That didn't stop rumors of a professional residential murder burglary crew from spreading. This sent a shockwave of fear and panic through Outgrow Village. This was a place where people moved to escape this level of inner city violence. The Columbo's second vehicle was also missing, a 1972 Oldsmobile. Patty was summoned to the PD the next day. Her presence was not quite what detectives expected. She wasn't mournful or dour. Patty showed up to the PD for questioning, dressed in a skimpy little see-through number and openly flirted with officers while smoking more cigarettes. Not only that, Patty brought in a lead for the detectives. She claimed her father ran a chop shop for the mob. The killings were most likely a mafia retaliation hit over a deal gone wrong. She also asked the cops when they were going to open her dad's safe. Evidently, Her uncle Mario didn't agree with Patty's intention of cremating her family. She wanted the bodies burned immediately. I don't think she realized the coroner had already evaluated their bodies before she could burn them. Anyways, that was strictly against the family's Catholic beliefs, but Patty wanted to assert she was the sole heir who got to make these decisions and told police that those paperwork and those documents would be in the safe. And... In Catholic, the Catholic world in, in 1963, early 60s, 65, whatever, uh, canon law was changed about cremation. So there were a lot of old school people probably sure. that, that still felt that way. Like they felt very mm-hmm. strongly. Yeah. And that this family was one of them. Little did Patty know, Frank Colombo had already removed his daughter from the will and all related properties. Oh, shit. Patty was hostile to other family members at the wake and did not shed a single tear. 
Based on the contents of their stomach and the condition of their bodies, the medical examiner determined the Columbos were killed between 11 p.m. on May 4, 1976 and 1 a.m. on May 5, 1976. The missing Oldsmobile was found a few days later. It was undamaged. A resident at the condo complex where it was found told police that when he left for work around 5.30 a.m. on May 5th, there had been no car parked in the space next to his, but when he returned home around 5.30, the Oldsmobile was there. When the car was examined by evidence technicians, five fingerprints were recovered, as well as two different types of cigarette butts from the ashtray and a blue blanket in the back seat, Part of the roof liner had red stains on it and was removed, and there was a bloody partial handprint on the trunk as if it had closed the trunk. What brand of cigarettes do you think they found in that Oldsmobile, Don Palumbo? guessing more. Guessing more. Mm -hmm. Give me one more. Cigarettes are great. (laughs) On Monday, May 10th, 1976, Patty's bizarre behavior continued at the closed casket funeral for her family. Having noted her flirtatious nature from the previous interview at the station, police intentionally sent a handsome young officer to the funeral. Patty flirted so openly with that cop that her extended family actually thought the cop was Frank DeLuca because they had never met him, so they had no idea. Outside the church... Patty joked and smoked cigarettes, but once inside, she made a dramatic scene and threw herself onto the caskets of her family. Detectives checked into Patty's suggestion that Frank Colombo had mob ties, and they came up empty. There were actually names in Frank's business docket of men whose last names were known to be associated with organized crime. That is a fact. However, police could not make a true connection between Frank and the mafia. All his receipts and taxes were in perfect order. They found nothing that tied him to the mob or illegal activity. In fact, one of the businesses that Patty alleged was his mafia connection partner that Frank worked with, a business Western Auto, offered a $5,000 reward for information related to the killings. The investigation then turned its focus on Patricia Colombo. On May 12, 1976, fingerprints were taken of Patty Colombo and Frank DeLuca. It was noticed and noted at the time that DeLuca was missing the index finger and the tip of his middle finger on his left hand. Two days after that, detectives brought in Lanny Mitchell, for questioning. Then they brought in Roman Subchinsky. Subchinsky. Police were given their names by a tipster wanting that 5K in reward money. Apparently, their little hitmen for sex charade was a popular story amongst their friends, and they weren't shy about sharing it. It turns out Roman Subchinsky was employed as a recruiting officer for the Cook County Department of Personnel, and he was a married father of three. Roman was held overnight, but this prick stonewalled him. He refused to talk, pleaded the fifth, and demanded a lawyer. And he's not a prick that was probably smart. It was actually really smart on his part. But he, they held him overnight, 
He stonewalled them. They had to let him go. But detectives partially corroborated Lanny Mitchell's story after Carolyn Tigre, the sister of Mary Colombo, told them about a suspicious encounter she had with Patty at the Colombo home. Patty showed up unannounced to get some random item and unlocked the patio door, but didn't take whatever item she came to get. Patty didn't think her aunt noticed that she unlocked that door, but she did, and Patty's aunt relocked it after she left. Following that, a warrant for the arrest of DeLuca and Patrish was issued, and officers showed up at their apartment to execute the warrant on the morning of May 15th, around 6 a.m. It was a shit jam. When officers pounded on the door and announced the warrant, DeLuca told them, I gotta make some calls before I can let you in. He ordered Patty to call the police department and verify the warrant was legit because these might be mafia hitmen in police costume seeking vengeance for Frank Colombo. Police identified themselves again, demanding the door be opened. DeLuca shouted back, You motherfuckers aren't getting in here! Police advised they were going to kick in the door, to which DeLuca replied, You guys are fucking animals! Officers then attempted to kick in the door for 15 straight minutes and failed, while DeLuca yelled the occasional obscenity at them through the door. When DeLuca finally opened the door, Patty was standing behind him, holding the collar of a large German shepherd. The two were arrested without further incident. DeLuca was released two days later. Patty was not. When Detective Rose questioned Patty Colombo about her overdue rent payments, she became angry and began to swear at Rose. Detective Rose then asked her if she knew Lanny Mitchell. Colombo said she didn't. But then Detective Rose began reading to her the very dossier she provided to Lanny Mitchell. In fact, Mitchell was currently being held for questioning, and officers made it a point to let Patty see him. Her tone changed quickly after that, and Patty told Rose that for some reason these people wanted to kill her parents, and they had forced her to participate in numerous sexual activities, although they never actually raped her. She then explained that she never told police because she was afraid she'd be harmed. In fact, she never even told Frank DeLuca about the hitmen. She ultimately gave a written and oral statement admitting to her solicitation of Lanny and Roman, but tried very hard to play herself off as a victim. Two days later, on the same day DeLuca was released... Patty told police, I had a vision. And the vision goes a little something like this. In the vision, Patty told police that I saw my mother and father lying on the floor in the living room of the house next to a chair by the rail. And he was laying on his back. He was wearing dark colored pants and and he had socks on but no shoes. And then I I went through the hallway and I saw my mother. She was laying on the floor and My mom was wearing a nightgown and a bathrobe. Then I saw my brother in the bedroom, and the bedroom was dark. I couldn't tell if he had clothes on or not, or pajamas, but there was a hall light on. I saw scissors with a bunch of blood. I saw myself in the house. 
But wait, I know I'm not certain. I'm confused. Then she said that she saw her father, and her father told her that Jesus would forgive her and that she had been wrong. She said that she saw herself in the Colombo house when the murders happened. She thought she was there. She might have been involved. She saw all her family laying dead together under Jesus. She then started talking about how she had been living with fear, fear of what her parents would do, fear of what they would do to her. Then there was hate and hate for her parents. And then she said that was like the end of her vision, and she gave a, an official statement on that, and um, that was that was the, the vision. So strange how often people who may or may not have done a killing don't want to say they were there, but then say, oh, I had this vision. I had right. this dream. And in the 70s, when we thought, you know, the basic study of psychology was voodoo or some kind of witchcraft, I mean, I don't think claiming to have a vision, I mean, it's damn near the Salem witch trials at that point in the 70s. I mean, my God, you claim to have a vision and you think people are going to believe you? Like that's the move you go with? Yeah, and I, I, I think really it's it's an apparent effort of, uh, it's, it's disassociation, you for, know, well, so, so sure. she, she could have felt in a vision-like disassociative state if she participated in the commission of these murders, but then you're also, you're always finding a way to make yourself seem somewhat innocent when you're sharing these truths. In well, the and, I, I, and I think she's, I think she's offering that up to, it's complete bullshit. She thinks she's, she's playing a game Yeah, and she thinks she's going to she, get out of there on it. She does. Unfortunately, as, as many young 17, 18, 19 year olds do, I've done it. I've seen my own kids do it. They think they know more. They oh, just well, think they know more. Absolutely. They're smarter. They're more clever. They've yeah. got it figured out. You're yeah. just some old fuddy-duddy dipshit, whatever. Like mm-hmm. kids always have these moments where they right. fucking think they know more than their parents and they don't. They don't. And but, she was no different. Right. So when DeLuca was released um, a couple days after, you know, it was Hubert Green, you know, his old muff buddy that picked him up and drove him to his estranged ex-wife's house, Marilyn DeLuca's. That was the last time Green ever saw DeLuca. I bet she was excited to see him. <laughs> I bet she was real excited. <laughs> yeah, I bet she was pumped, boy. Yeah. It's poor kids. On May 26th, Roman Subchinsky was offered immunity in exchange for his, tes- his testimony, and he corroborated everything from Mitchell adding his own little details to the history of their ruse, hitmen will kill for sex. You see, Mitchell and Roman, they weren't hitmen at all. They were just stringing Patty along for sex and maybe some money. Everything he and Mitchell did was just to have sex with Patty, and they never had any intention of killing the Columbos. They had no political connections, no influence whatsoever. None. Zero. Although I feel like I feel like it's probably easier to get laid than that. <laughs> like again, not trying to judge, right? But I, it's not that hard. And, and I mean, I deposed as a hitman to get laid once, right? Like she fucked my friend first. It just feels I mean, weird. It's, just, it's not great. It's not great. Obviously, they were super smart. <laughs> well, pretty clever. But it is likely Roman did provide the murder weapon, 
the seven-shot thirty-two caliber revolver that was never found. He did provide them with a gun. It was a snub-nosed revolver with seven shots. As you might recall, four bullets were covered from Frank, one from Mary, and two from Michael. There were no other bullets on scene. But these guys got immunity. However, that immunity would be nullified if any evidence indicated these two dipshits were directly involved in the murders. Hubert Green and Joy Hasick eventually came forward as witnesses. Their statements were key to finally rearresting Frank DeLuca in July of 1976 and charging him next to Patrish Colombo for the murders. While awaiting trial, Frank DeLuca made a friend. It wasn't Jailhouse Jesus. Okay. He didn't show up here. No. But it was a fellow inmate, Clifford Childs. And to Childs, DeLuca bragged of his flawlessly brilliant murder plan. And how easy it was to kill the Colombo family. Right, because this guy just cannot help himself. No. Like, and he has to talk about his dumb course. things. And, you know, he has to talk about how brilliant his mm-hmm. plan is as he's sitting in fucking jail. Right, yeah. Your it plan out. got you arrested, dumbass. It worked out well for you. I'm so, it's just so, God. like, he's literally like, oh, I'm so smart. Look at this murder I planned. And then I did it, and it was easy, and here I am. Those pigs ain't got shit. That's what he was saying. Everything, he said, everything would have gone perfect if not for those meddling Walgreens employees. The, if it weren't for those meddling kids that I told everything to, right? Like, If not for those meddling like, Walgreens seriously? employees that ratted him out. Without any witnesses, Frank DeLuca was confident he could win a jury trial. Lucky for DeLuca, his celly just so happened to be a hitman who would do the killings for, you guessed it, $10,000. Not sex? Just, <laughs> just $10,000? I think it was just the ten k this time. I, so, yeah, child said, hey, I'll, I'll kill those witnesses for bail money and 10000 bucks per kill. DeLuca then gave detailed physical descriptions of Joy and Hubert. He also provided directions to their homes and a dossier of their activities. After bailing him out, the plan was for Marilyn DeLuca, his estranged ex-wife, to bail Childs out of jail so he could then abduct the witnesses, kill them, and bury their bodies in lime somewhere in Indiana. I mean, it sounds easy. I mean, it's really simple when you think about it. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. On November 25th, 1976, Marilyn DeLuca sent two money orders totaling just over $3,400 to Childs and then another $830. On February 24th, 1977, Marilyn DeLuca picked up Childs and drove him to her home where she gave him another 1300 bucks in cash, handed him the keys to DeLuca's old car and said happy murdering and never saw him again. Like Lanny Mitchell and Roman Subchinsky, Clifford Childs never had any intention of killing anyone, but he was happy for the financial benefit from Frank DeLuca. Patty and DeLuca went to trial just over a year after the murders and chose a trial by jury. Now, the evidence, you have witness statements. There was a bloody handprint that experts determined was from a gloved hand that was likely stuffed. The finger was stuffed in the gloved hand. They also connected Patty to the crime scene through the more cigarettes that were left in the Colombo house and in the car. 
There was a nine-inch knife found laying outside, but surprisingly no foreign substances on that knife. It wasn't presumed to be the murder weapon. Blood samples taken from Frank and Mary were not suitable for comparison because they were all contaminated. So all the blood samples from the house and everything were contaminated, unable to be used. And that was due to bacteria from the putrefaction of their bodies. Oh, sure. Because it, they had been decaying. They were in, in yep. decomposing and tech at that wasn't, point. Yeah. wasn't as good. Now, I don't yep. know if that's changed now, but back then that was it. And in terms of any sort of evidence found on DeLuca's shoes or evidence in the home, there was nothing. They found, you know, a bunch of naked photographs and uh, amateur pornography videos of yeah. him and Joy and this guy and that girl and this German shepherd and whatever. Uh, but nothing that could physically link, link them, them to the actual mm-hmm. murders. So it all came really down to the witness testimony. This case was hardly circumstantial, to be very clear. I mean, mm-hmm. it was hardly circumstantial. You just didn't have the physical evidence. They wore gloves. There was no fingerprints. So after a trial, which lasted about a week, the jury spent less than three hours in deliberation before returning a guilty verdict on all counts. The trial court sentenced the defendant, Colombo to concurrent sentences of 20 to 50 years for solicitation and 2 to 300 years for the murder of Frank, Mary, and Michael Colombo. The court denied a motion for an appeal bond and also sentenced to DeLuca to the same sentence, 2 to 300 years for the murders of each person. After court, the two never saw one another again. DeLuca moved for a new trial a month after conviction. He was denied Same thing with Patty. Both defendants filed appeals and both were denied in 1983. Patty was sent to the Dwight Correctional Center in October of 1977 to serve her sentence. Two years into her stretch in 1979, she was implicated as a mastermind in a prison prostitution ring in which she pimped female inmates to correctional staff and high-level facility management. The scandal led to the resignation of most of the high command of the prison. Of fucking course. Of course. She's not dumb. No. I mean... And, yeah, she's not dumb, and if she can't get off, she wants someone else to. (laughs) It's a good one, actually. It's a good one. <laughs> Parole hearings over the decades were vehemently denied. DeLuca died at some point. Uh, I mean, who really gives a shit where? But the parole, uh, the parole board didn't really deserve. He told the parole board, "I do not deserve to ever see the free light of day." Uh, I think he died in like 2019. Patty's still alive out there somewhere, probably being weird. I don't know. Um, allegedly, she's recovered and, and is doing well and got a she's degree rehabilitated, and helps I bet. people. And, I'm sure. Uh, yeah, but she's never going to see the, no. the, the light of day. What was the, uh, why was Joy supposed to go to the movie or go watch? Because DeLuca wanted her to be his alibi for the night sure. of the murders. And sure. that was the night the killings were going to go down. And so following the murders, he then, he, you know, he tried to force her and scare her into being his alibi. That was why he yeah. wanted her to do that. And thank you for that, because I did forget the question. I would and, and, and about halfway through, I was like, shit, what was that question again? I was supposed to remember something I didn't. Thank you. Okay. And- hmm. There's, there is a lot of dirty details that are left unsaid in terms of the, uh, 
uh, we'll call it the nuance of their sexual relationship. And there, there's a lot of rumor and conjecture around this one. We usually, we generally, we keep it to the facts on the show, but I just will say for anybody that wants to dig deeper out there on the internet, there's a lot of, there's a lot of weird shit with this one. You'll find that Patty has an old cousin that is a pretty staunch defender of her in uh, various book reviews and blog comments and stuff like that. And uh, I, I, I would go into what that says, but not on the official, not on our official episode because it's none of it is is none of his fact based that I that corroborated. Yeah. So, um, yeah, by far one of the more bizarre situations that that we have faced here. Hmm. Any other? I got I got nothing. Sometimes I, you got something. I know, I know. Today I don't. This is. I'm not sure what else I could offer at this point. <laughs> Sources for this one. People versus Columbo, the court documents, the portions of the book Love's Blood by Clark Howard, Illinois Parole Board Minutes, the uh, story The Crimes of Patricia Columbo by Laura Johnston, the story Twisted Sister by Mara Bovson, and the timeline based on interestingfacts.com. Midwest Murder is uh, co-hosted by myself and Don Palumbo. This episode was written by Jonah Lanto. This was our first recording ever in Wapaton. And damn, we sure appreciate being here with all of you guys. Absolutely. Thanks for having us.